Hey, everybody. Let's hear. Welcome to a new season of the Be a Beacon podcast. I was hoping that COVID would have been over by the time I would have came back, but we're still here and we're making, you know, the best of it. We're doing everything that we can. As you see, this was on video because there are some dope people on this episode tonight that I had to show, had to show everybody shining in their glory. You're going to hear about everything that they are doing shortly. I just wanted to take a moment and give a shout out to our sponsors. Shout out to Dr. Destiny Thomas, who runs the, who has the Thrivens Project, all black female led urban planning firm. Uh, you'll see more of her information in the show notes. She was just on GMA discussing more about the communities and, you know, in the Thrivens Project, she is doing incredible work in urban planning. The reason I'm having this episode tonight is because we don't realize that everything we do is connected. It's always important for each and every one of us to be beacons, not only to ourselves, but have that shine to help everyone else. And that's what all of these ladies on this episode are doing this evening. Someone brought up something to me about porches, about how on our, you know, like most houses these days aren't designed with porches, you know, like that anymore. And then when I looked around, I was like, you know, shit, they are right. It's hardly any porches and, you know, and, you know, and that's a place where a lot of people convene. That was a space for many people. Also, you know, just the way a lot of things are being designed these days. And a lot of us, we just take for granted, oh, it's here. You know, we'll just, you know, move here. We'll go to this grocery store. We'll go to this mall. We'll shop at this Walmart. But the design does matter. It, the, the placement of it matters. And a lot of us that, a lot of people that aren't in the field, they don't notice that. And there are separations, you know, whether it's, you know, with community organizing, whether it's with urban planning, whether it's with, you know, architects, interior design, architectural design, but it's time to just really integrate a lot of that together. What we do in our everyday lives with entertainment, shopping, uh, taking care of our families, all integrated. And that's why I have everyone here today. I'm going to take a moment and introduce everyone, you know, and I've introduced uh, Destiny. And last but not least, definitely have to shout out my partner in life and love, Kristen Jeffers, with the Black Urbanist. Hi. <laughs> I am briefly here. I didn't want to take up a lot of time because I'm just popping up here as a very guest on the um, Be a Beacon podcast. It's been a joy to help Les put this together in the second season, of course. With this particular episode, those of you who know me know that this is my wheelhouse. This is where I live. This is where I've been doing things since this is year 10. And so specifically tonight as a, um, also as a queer person, but specifically in this conversation, you'll see me and then I'm gonna pop back off the screen and I'm gonna pop back off the audio because tonight is so special that we have people on this call, women who, bear a lot of the weight, you know, black women, um, sometimes received as masculine, sometimes, you know, all the different stereotypes and everything that come up. And they're also connected to this for either as planners, designers, uh, advocates, like professional advocates, in some cases, frontline legacy of having been driving the bus. And so that's why I'm here tonight. Happy to present this. Uh, if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, theblackurbanist.com, specifically the new book clubs and circles I've started, theblackurbanist.com slash circles is the best place to find me, always at Black Urbanist, Instagram, and Twitter. And so I'm going to kick it back to Les to get back to this wonderful conversation. And we're going to introduce these three wonderful people that have so much to say about this issue, specifically as Black queer women in urbanism and design. All right. Thank you again, baby, for such a lovely introduction. And y'all, she's doing dope stuff. Definitely, whether you are P, uh, by POC or white, there's a she has a book club for you. Of course, white folks, it's don't hurt. The ones for y'all is donation based to make sure that BIPOC people can have a space, a free space 
on learning more. So her, more of Kristen's information will definitely be in the show notes. I'm so excited and I watch how much time and energy that she puts into this and for everyone to share and for everyone to learn from. It's very incredible. And it's very incredible also to have all of y'all here. I'm gonna start with Tamika Butler. What hasn't she done? Y'all have probably seen her, you know, lately. I've just always admired the work that she's done, whether it's been with bicycle advocacy, transportation, urban planning, all of it. You know, so I'm definitely glad that she's here today. And y'all, y'all see her on the one on the cover of Bicycling Magazine very soon. So by the time this episode is released, you'll probably say, "Hey, she's on the cover of my Bicycling Magazine." <laughs> So, you know, definitely. Um, and then we have Ebony Dumas here. Y'all, a lot of y'all may know her as AKA DJ Natty Boom. I've always admired. And learning now that she's an urban planner makes that even more special. Like, wow, because you have so many people. I've seen some things where people in entertainment separate, you know, entertainment from what they figure is just boring, important stuff. But it all integrates. And that's why I'm very pleased and proud to have her here this evening. Also, Desiree Powell, introducing her. She is really, really great. I admire. She's going to tell you all more about, you know, what she's doing with Black Spaces, her, her venture. She's going to just tell you more about her place in the world and just some other creative things that she is doing that I, have to, I find absolutely dope. So thank you again, Desiree, for taking time out your schedule tonight and taking your free time tonight to be here. So again, y'all, I'm having this because it all, all of this intersects and these people here show that, that all that urban planning does intersect many of the things that we do every day. And sometimes I think, especially in the, in the movements that we're in right now, especially with the focus being on Black Lives Matter, yeah, we are, there is a more heightened sensibility but also I think sometimes there's still separate, separatisms, you know, in a way where, okay, you have the organizers focusing on this, but what, wait, what about our buildings? What about our homes? You know, what about just how, you know, just how everything is planned about how our streets are even planned that we're protesting here today. So I'll start with you, Tamika. What, you know, what have you, you know, what have you, you know, really taken out of this movement so far, like with integrating your work? I know you've had a lot of changes going on and, you know, definitely tell us more about that and how like this movement right now is integrating with what you're doing. Yeah, well, first, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, and I'm really excited to be on the podcast with with these two awesome uh, folks. Uh, I, I'm coming straight from, from work, um, even though it's all at home, I'm in the same seat. So I didn't get a chance to, to get as fresh as everybody else, but happy to be here. You know, I think one of the main ways this movement has impacted me is that I left the private consulting firm I was at. And I think, um, I think it, it was a decision where, you know, someone I respected there, um, made a decision to take an unpaid leave of absence and to really be in this moment and to really contribute um, in the best ways uh, that, that they could. And, and I heard that and I wanted to do that. I think the other thing is when, when you're a woman of color, a particularly a queer woman of color, um, particularly like gender non-conforming, um, or frankly, any person who has been oppressed, I'm sure indigenous folks feel this way, folks with disabilities um, feel this way, women have felt this way in many situations. We get so used to showing up in certain places in certain ways and to doing that code switching to be able to do our work and frankly survive. Um, and that work is exhausting. And I think going out on my own was just this this feeling of, you know, I, I said when I did it that I wanted to find my own voice, that I got really good at using other people's, um, you know, bullhorns, but I wanted to hold up my own bullhorn. I wanted right. to be my own um, amplifier and to be able to, to, to really be, I am comfortable with who I am, um, but that doesn't mean I make everybody comfortable. And I wanted to fully be in a place where I was concerned about being comfortable with who I am, where I could be my full self and I would be valued for all that I had to offer and not for what people determined I could do. And so I'm really excited in this moment 
really hopeful for what this moment is bringing us, but I'm still a black woman raised by black women. And so I always have a healthy amount of skepticism <laughs> about what this moment can really mean. So as much as I'm hopeful for where we are, I'm also really holding on to feelings of skepticism and, and, and anger, frankly, about all of these people who are deciding to jump on and say, well, now's the moment. I just yes. didn't know these things existed before. And I say to that, you chose to not know, right? Because now, we've right. been saying it and you chose to not believe us. So those are, yes. you know, the complicated emotions I'm, I'm having in this moment, but, but mainly um, hope and frankly, holding on to joy, holding on to being able to find joy and happiness because Black people deserve that too. Well, that's for sure. And I know all of you have been busy, especially you, Tamika. I mean, this girl just got off of a call, came right to this. That is how important this conversation is. And, but Tamika, I, I wanted also, I wanted to ask you because, I mean, you've been all, I mean, you've been all over the place. I, I mean, to every time I turn on the internet now, you're in a post, you, you know, you've been debating, you've been, how, I mean, how has that really been just, like, how has it been even before the quarantine, you in these kind of more majority white spaces is not only a black woman, but a genderqueer woman, you know, a gender nonconforming woman, like how, I mean, I know, how does, how do you, how has that impacted your work and how does that, how did that work for you as far as just interacting and, you know, in the, in the boardrooms or just in these, you know, kind of more traditionally white male dominated spaces? Yeah, I mean, it's been a tough few years for me, right? I'm in these predominantly white spaces. Um, and, and I think I'm in a racist world, in a world full of white supremacy. Um, and I, I love my wife um, uh, and, and she's white. And so I think mm -hmm. there's also things where I can't come home every day and just have somebody who's like, I get it, right? Like, right. And so it's sometimes hard to be in a position where you are teaching constantly all day and then you come home. And I think I'm very lucky to have a partner who before this moment realized that white supremacy is a white people's problem. And so <laughs> she's got to do the work, right? And so I think in that yes. sense, that's been really helpful, but it, it's, it's exhausting. Um, it's, it's exhausting. And I think there is a fair share of it that is energizing. Um, you know, one of the things I always say is that these white folks might be inviting us places to speak and talk um, because they want to check a box, but that doesn't mean that I am simply a token that is only doing what I do to make white people love me. Because as soon as I get there, I'm going to say what I want to say, right? Right. And right. so I think in that sense, knowing your worth and being able to fully step into that worth and fully step into that purpose um, is a really powerful thing. And so I've also enjoyed it and I've enjoyed having an opportunity to put other people on. I'm not just trying to get free, like my people are trying to get free. And so I'm trying to yes. bring people with me anywhere I go. And so I, just as much as I love being on a webinar or, you know, on, on a stage in non-COVID times, I love even more to say, I can't do that, but you should talk to this person. I, I loved, mm -hmm. you know, talking to Good Morning America when I was still at Tool and saying, yo, but you know, the story you really should be telling is about Dr. Destiny Thomas and Brittany Brown and this firm they're putting together and being able to use those opportunities. Um, and I think what that takes is a mindset of abundance. It takes us yes. realizing as a collective people that there's gonna be opportunities for us and we shouldn't be trying to hoard it. We should be trying to share yes. it and, and bring other people along. And so that's been, that's been really, really energizing um, for me. And I really like that. Camaraderie, y'all. That's, and that's another reason why I had, I was like, you know what, I, I want to have, I wanted to have a black queer, you know, panel like this group talk today. You know, it's that because sometimes, you know, you know, when we're already marginalized, 
we want it. Some people want to hoard all of it for themselves. They want to be a token. So yeah, I'm glad you said that people needed to hear that this evening. And, you know, Ebony, you know, what about you? How's, you know, just, you know, your work in the movement? Because you integrate many spaces, you know, you, you know, your entertainment work. And one thing I admired was especially, um, well, I, someone else in one of my earlier episodes, I had interviewed uh, Lee Levinston Brain. Shout out to Lee for all the work he does uh, with Makers Lab. You, you were on hikes, like it was just so refreshing. I mean, it was already a great virtual black pride space, but for you to integrate, you know, the black urbanism with, you know, you being on hikes and, you know, you being around the trees and all of that, that was very refreshing. And that, that was just dope. I was like, wait, DJ Natty Boom, she's not, you know, she's not performing, you know, today, so, but this weekend. So it was so cool, you know? Yeah, well, let's be real. Gender, gender is a performance, and so yeah, 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 for sure. Make a choice on what to wear and how we want to present ourselves. Right. Um, but to introduce myself a little bit more, my name is Ebony Dumas. Um, I'm an urban planner and a DJ, as Les just mentioned. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, I bring this up because it really describes a lot of like maybe how I'm viewing things right now as well. And so um, going to magnet schools in that area, it would be people from all over the city coming into one space, mostly in a black neighborhood. Um, and then when I started to have white friends, which was like this, whoa, this kind of like new thing, um, going over to their houses, I would see, you know, a really different picture than what the area and what the built environment was like around my house. And so there were sidewalks in the white neighborhoods. There were really well manicured and landscaped um, public parks. And so understanding that the city was really investing in a different way in different neighborhoods and like Tulsa is so segregated. Um, that's when I started to really see urban design and urban planning, um, even though I didn't know that I was what I was seeing. I didn't have a context to say, this is urban planning or like someone is making a decision about this. I just saw like, oh, okay, well, clearly like you know this neighborhood deserves more um, than the neighborhoods that me and my family live in uh, so highlighting that I you know later on started to understanding that urban planning was uh, a career choice and I got into that career through DJing literally because we were having house parties and in DC around 2000 you know six or seven having those house parties meant that there was still a majority black city, majority black neighborhoods, um, a lot of long-term residents who were homeowners. And so we got to know those folks. We you know, invited them to the parties. They were always at the function. And so not only was it a bunch of like mid 20 year olds, but there was also clearly like every party, a group of you know, 50 plus black folks who were holding a, holding a corner up. Um, and then as the demographics of DC in general started to change, so did the makeup of the neighborhoods where we were living. And lo and behold, we started to have the cops called on us uh, pretty much every time. And at that point, I started to go to neighborhood, um, like ANC meetings, advisory neighborhood council meetings. Right. I would see the kind of demographic shift also play out in who was at those meetings. And so we had newer residents starting to be on the councils and be, you know, like very active parts of the neighborhood, which is great. You know, we should all be really involved in our neighborhoods. Um, but there was always a clash between the long-term residents and the newer term residents. And I would always try to find myself like, how do I, how do I participate in this? How do I want to navigate these situations? And that's when I started to understand that urban planning and city planning specifically um, was, was, you know, what really was igniting me. And so um, as a DJ, we were being used as essentially an economic development tool because we're bringing in queer people, we're bringing in people of color um, and lots of different communities to come to function. And so not only are we um, patroning a club, a specific club, but we're also going out to dinner in that area. We're also coming back the next weekend and spending money and spending our, our you know, hard earned money in these areas. Um, and so that's where I came into urban planning and where I am right now in my thinking with this moment. So I work in the public sector and there's also, you know, a heavy conversation about community engagement. Um, I've worked in the private sector and worked at a firm that um, was an urban planning, urban design and landscape architecture firm. 
Um, and we really uh, like prided ourselves on like handling community engagement, being able to do the charrettes, being able to like, you know, put the stakeholders together. Um, and then from there, I went to work kind of in the nonprofit community development space. And so what I've constantly seen is like the conversation around equity and, you know, like racial justice has often been like, okay, let's talk to the community, like capital T, capital C, like trademark, the community, when like the community is really whoever is living in an area. And when we have, you know, the public sector and policy that has um, been discriminatory for ever since it was invented, then we have uh, like really white neighborhoods. And are we listening to the community when there is a lot of like embedded racism in the built environment? Um, and so I'm really interested in concepts of reparations, but reparations of like acknowledging that a, a neighborhood is all white for a reason. And so we can't only listen to those neighbors. And yeah, those are some things that I've been thinking about a lot at this time. And speaking of that, because that has been such a hot topic. And thanks for going more in depth with everything, you know, that you're involved with and just things that you've been on your mind and you've been applying. What do y'all think about, you know, reparations in general? Do you, how do you think, do you think we'll get them in the form of what many people want? Like, hey, we're going to get it in a check or land. I mean, what are, what, what's your view, you know, with that? Since you brought that, since you brought that word up. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting for sure. Um, as far as like how that plays out, it's, um, I think, like Ebony mentioned, as far as like non nonprofit community development and spaces, right. um, you wanted more of a sense of land because um, so many people, James Baldwin, uh, Booker T. Washington has put so much, and W.E. Du Bois put so much em emphasis on like land and that's where it starts. And right. without that, you really don't have a place. When you have land, you create the place, you build the built environment and you kind of design it in a way that fits the community that you're trying to, you know, um, reach out to. Whereas, I mean, getting a check would be cool too, don't get me wrong. Like if they talk about it, like, yeah, I'm still pro check. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, that's something that, land is something that is, um, it's not easily accessible to uh, black people, traditionally just because we've been left out for of that sure. conversation. Um, and when you have people like us that are, you know, aware and cognizant and educated about land use, there's no loopholes, there's no tricking us out of, you know, selling, you know, selling your grandma's house or getting tricked into a covenant deed or getting tricked out of a covenant deed. So I think reparations looks more like, um, like, you know, I want it so I can put my people on it. Like, like Tamika mentioned, if I get on, I want everybody to get on. And that seems to be the biggest conversation in the sense of, yes, reparations, but also land use. Land use is so, uh, so critical that I think <laughs> we even as planners sometimes forget that we, we're using that as a policing mechanism to keep certain things out and keep bring certain things in. So, I mean, I'm interested to see how it plays out, but I definitely think that equates to uh, land accessibility over financial accessibility. Oh, for sure, for sure. You have just so many views on that, and I'm gonna put the floor on you, Desiree. What you know? <laughs> so, y'all, of course, Desiree been doing wonderful, wonderful things. You know, not only you know in her community, but also with Black Spaces. But I'm gonna let her tell you a little more about what she's doing. Uh, so, thank you again for having me. Uh, my name is Desiree. No uh, doubt. Sometimes, or commonly seen on social media as D. Um, I started Black Spaces, um, B-L-C-K-S-P-C-S, just honestly as a blog, I left my public sector job in December, um, just wanted more for myself from an urban planning perspective and just um, kind of trying to reach, reach the sky, really, um, ambition kind of took over. And I just felt myself getting con content with where I was and getting a little, getting a little depressed from not seeing the movement that I wanted. Um, at my at my previous position in my previous position so I created black spaces just as a space that I could exist as a black planner a black queer planner as well as other people so it's it's planner talk but it's also just like as if you're talking to the homies it's very um right. relatable very down to earth because I noticed a lot in my in my schooling as well as in my work that we talk so much even sometimes I'm in meetings I would be in meetings I'm just like what what did they say uh, what are we talking about? And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I work there, but I'm just like, we're talking to somebody that 
you know, barely speak English, so I know he don't understand. I'm sitting here like I wrote those notes and I don't understand what right. we're talking about. So I definitely took that as a, a chance to be more human, a chance to be more of myself and to really exist as a black planner and be very unapologetic about it. Um, and it, it was kind of, or created out of, um, I've recently realized that I'm really into urban design and placemaking and creating equitable, truly equitable and comfortable spaces for black and brown people. Um, like Ebony mentioned about parks that are beautifully maintained to a T in white neighborhoods and in black neighborhoods, you can't even get a rim that's not lopsided at the park. Um, or even a basketball goal doesn't have a chain link or things that not even sports related, just, you know, quality seating. Um, so I delved more into that and that's how I kind of created that idea of it. And I, right now, pr primarily uh, do consultant work as a placemaker, I guess you could call it, or a place creator. I like to use that more than placemaker. <laughs> um, so doing like market installations, temporary things, activation of spaces, and really just trying to create community spaces that we can exist without being shut down, the police called, sure, things of that nature. So that's kind of the world that I exist in, or the realm that I exist in. Right, and I'm, you know, I'm really glad that all three of y'all have brought these topics up. With everything that y'all have mentioned, what does that mean exactly for the Black, I'm going to focus on the Black queer community. Many of us, you know, we're just scrapping to survive. A lot of us, we're doing everything that we can, but how would you recommend for, as planners, for our Black queer community to get more engaged in the planning process, you know, especially on terms of things like the security issues, you know, issues with law enforcement, issues on safety, you know, how would y'all say, or your opinions on how, you know, how planning and being involved in the planning process, how would that work for a Black queer, you know, our Black queer community? Um. I'd say, I mean, it, it, in a way, it's similar to how you would get Black people as a whole to be involved. Um, mm -hmm. Education, and I know that's tireless and that never stops, but as, fair, as far as like, you see more Black queers in this profession, but I also think you can't make people want to be comfortable in that skin in their professional life. Some people feel like it's a, a harborance rather than a, um, a positive. They feel like that's a hurdle, an additional hurdle, so they don't want people to know. Um, but I definitely think like you mentioned security, um, that is an issue that people don't see as important. I think when you come together as one and you're on the same page as far as not just at a club, but even as a space, I've gone to white bars, gay bars that are security enforced all the way through. And I've gone to right. black ones a couple of blocks down the street and it's like free for all. Um, so getting those people involved and that goes from, I think like management, patrons of that area, uh, patrons of that particular establishment, and even people in places that are doing advocacy work. So whether that's for um, trans rights, um, gender non-conforming, I think people like that, um, nonprofit advocacy work is really where I think me being like 100% grassroots, right. uh, I think that's how you get people involved from that aspect. Because they feel more comfortable, I think, when they're talking to a nonprofit rather than somebody at the city. Right, but now, because I know in my time with transportation advocacy and transportation organizing, it was a lot of times I would be the only person, you know, in some of these meetings, it would just be other government officials and maybe sometimes someone from a nonprofit or another community space, but it was very slim to none. And, you know, I've been, you know, I've, I've been around all types of people, they'll say, you know, all that, you know, they're going to do what they wanted to do. They're going to do what they want to do. And even it's a classism, you know, intersection as well, where people say, well, those, you know, those bougie people, they're going to do, they're going to do it the way they want to do it. They don't care about us, you know. How would y'all say as planners, because I know y'all interact with, you know, a lot of people and very, in a mixture of people and a variety of people. Would you say like, you know, as your work as planners, not only, you know, do we, do you need more engagement with like the, you know, of course the architects and, you know, people doing the construction, but also maybe adding in like, maybe like a social worker and, or like, you know, maybe like someone in the security apparatus, you know, when planning, especially in certain neighborhoods and certain like zones that y'all work with? I mean, so I think for me, I don't think I need security of any type um, to like, you know, I'm, I'm not ever going to say there should be 
more enforcement or more policing right. to do any of this work. I do think, you know, something Desiree said that really resonated with me. I remember when I got my first transportation job at the Bike Coalition, I used to take amazing notes at the meetings. And everyone would always say, well, Tamika, could you share your notes? Because you always take such good notes. And what they didn't realize is I was taking such good notes because I was just writing down words that I didn't know what they meant. I was just like, I was just like, what are people talking yeah. about? And, right. and, and, you know, planning and land use, and, and I too like to use the term land use because I think it's about so much more than just transportation or open space. I think it's about how we use land, who gets to move freely on land, who gets to stay exactly where they are, right? Yes. Like, like owning, being, uh, being an inhabitant on Tongva land and like who gets to stay, who gets to leave, who gets to move, who gets to, um, you know, as was already said, land use is another form of policing. Um, it's another way of regulating black bodies um, and telling yeah. us where we can't go and can go. And so with everybody freaking out with COVID being like, I can't believe I can't go where I want to go and it's my personal right. right. It's like, what do you think it's been like being black in this country forever? Yeah. What do you think it's yeah. been like being queer and black? What do you think it's been like being a black queer person who everyone thinks is a young black man like you oh I'm sorry you have to think twice about where you go and how close you get to people and 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 how friendly you could be or people are going to think you're talking too close and and so these are all things we we've had to deal with before and so when I think how can we get more of these perspectives in in our fields, whether or not you're talking about planning or engineering or architecture or any of these things, I do think it's breaking down those silos. I, you know, some of the best projects I've been on have been with social workers, have been with public yeah. health folks, have been with folks who can see outside of this myopic transportation view. Yes. Um, Charles Brown at Rutgers, you know, I remember one of the first times I heard him speak, he was like, if you're at a planning meeting and your transportation planner says to a person who has a question about housing or gentrification and displacement or any of these other issues that might be plaguing their community, if, if your transportation planner's response to that is, well, I'm just a transportation planner, I can't answer that question, then it's time for you to find another transportation planner, right? Sure. Because we have to be able to, to see all of these different issues and we have to realize that for the people who theoretically we're serving with our work, they don't just stop and say, okay, now I'm in this issue. Okay, now I'm at this issue, right? As much as that's our framework, as much as we want to circulate them at a community meeting from table to table and say only think about this one thing at this one table, their life is constantly flowing. So when they're going to work, they're thinking about how they're going to get there. They're thinking about their kids. They're thinking about how they're going to pay for dinner. They're thinking about all these things. And most of them happen without them even realizing they're thinking about them. And so we have to integrate that. And you know, the last thing I'll say is, I always struggle with this question of like, how can we as a people get more involved? Like, I do want us to be more involved. I've said multiple times, I think urban planning is a secret profession that like the white folks didn't want us to know about because it is so much control over how we move in space and take right. up space and stay in space. Um, but I also don't want to put that on us. Just like I said, white supremacy is a white people's problem. Like I wanna know for all the white folks who work in our field, how are you going to get more people that look like us to be at your community meetings? When you do a study about gender and transportation, gender equity, who are you defining as a woman? Who are you valuing the opinions of? How do you deal with folks who are non-binary? How do you deal with trans folks? How do you elevate their safety concerns? Why is it important enough whether or not a cisgender white woman feels comfortable sitting on her train um, going through a low-income community of color where those folks always rode the train, but because now gentrification and displacement who were protecting on these trains looks different, but what are you doing about the trans black woman who's been harassed every single day and how are her experiences elevated? And so I think I think those are the types of things where I don't want to put it all on us. I want to know those folks who have historically had power, what are they going to do to make sure we're included or what are they going to do to seed some of that power so that those of us who just think about those things because that's how we move through the world get to be in those decision-making positions. Yeah, um, and I would even build on what Tamika just brought up as um, to answer your question, 
you know, I think we are really involved. I think, you know, black queer people have started this movement for black lives that we're in right now. And the, the reason that we're having this conversation, honestly, the reason that planning departments and firms and, and schools are reevaluating their, their um, you know, their, the, what, what is taught in the canon, what is, you know, lifted up as actually urban planning. Um, and so we're, we are involved. We started Black Lives Matter to queer black yeah. women, another uh, cis black woman, um, Movement for Black Lives, which is the policy arm of Black Lives Matter. There's uh, BYP 100, which is the direct action arm of Black Lives Matter. And so many of those leaders are um, unapolog unapologetically black queer people. And especially even with BYP 100, they like specifically organize within a black queer uh, feminist lens. And so anyone who joins has to understand uh, that lens to be able to organize a direct action. Um, and so I think, you know, right now I feel like we're in a place where we are having conversations that Black queer people started 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago, hundreds of years ago even, of what does it mean to actually be safe? And I don't think that like our society and our, our cities are really set up to acknowledge that we need safety and safety looks different for different people. Um, right. For me personally, on the 4th of July, I was harassed with a group of friends by cops who had his hand on the gun and yelling at us for sitting in public space. And so that didn't end in me, you know, unfortunately it did not end in me losing my life. And yeah. so I'm not a hashtag, but training, you know, bias training wasn't gonna stop that from happening. Having a body cam on him wasn't gonna stop that from happening. The only thing that would have stopped it from happening is if there was not a chartered mandate to have a badge and a gun patrolling the streets where we live. Um, and so I think people like, um, you know, the Allied Media Conference, which just happened last weekend, is really a place that is about like reimagining what safety is. And that's where right. I became involved in these conversations and understanding um, just the power of radical imagination. And now those things that we were talking about 12, 10 years ago are, are now like the op-eds on New York Times, like totally the same people where I was DJing the function as a fundraiser to, you know, get people to a space or to support a grassroots organization. Those people are now like being looked to as leaders of our, you know, current conversations. Um, and so what I really think is important is that the cities and our municipalities start to reevaluate who they are planning for and how to have more voices like us at the table. And, you know, I, I agree with you, but there is sometimes still that disconnect, especially with a lot of, you know, certain organizations, like a lot of organizations that you mentioned, they're great organizations. But sometimes we find that some organizations don't want to be involved with the process because some people no longer trust the municipalities. They no longer, you know, trust, you know, them to handle it. So it's like, you know, like I was having a conversation with someone that, you know, that mentioned, hey, you know, it's time for us just to all split off and form our own governments. And I don't know if anyone wants to, you know, chime in on this, but, you know, y'all, you know, work, you know, well, Tamika used to, you know, now you're independent, but you two still working with municipalities. How would you say we bridge that, that gap? How would you say that we, you know, bridge that kind of distance? Because, yeah, we know that eventually, yeah, we do need to form our own things, but how do we, in the meantime, bridge the gap between, you know, sometimes some of these, you know, these organizations say, oh, we should be more independent or we don't want to fuck with them. You know, they don't mean us any good. You know, we just need to keep just being our, our own enclave with the municipalities that we still reside in and that we still need services from. Um, so we, I, I had a a call with the engineer a couple of weeks ago um, out of California and he's not black, but he was, so he talked to me a lot about how the reason that a lot of black communities can't survive without the services because the city won't, you know, do the proper trenches or they don't want to do, you know, the proper engineering and they know a black community probably doesn't have access to an engineer to do that work. Um, so when you talk about splitting off and having our own government and providing those services, I think, as you can see, there's enough of us that are capable of, if I don't do the engineering, then I know someone that does. 
right um, that can make that happen for as far as like services to a black community as far as splitting off it's it's something that unfortunately i think as certain organizations do rise to a little bit of notability and credibility uh their head gets a little big so they they're less likely to collaborate and they feel like okay now we're ready to split off and do our own thing and I think, and I've seen it on the public side as well, you see some amazing groups and some amazing organizations, once they catch the eye of a, you know, a city council person or some type of public, you know, some public figure in the community right. that wasn't looking that way before, but now all of a sudden they're pro everything, pro trans, pro all the things, um, because something's changed in their life. Maybe their kid came out and now they're just trying to be down for the cause. Um, now that's kind of changed the, changed the uh, the trajectory of where they're coming from as far as a city they, they want that city partnership now to show of course for the city councilman it looks great he's open he's down he's accepting but in reality you've still now you've kind of a little bit sold your soul to the devil in the sense of your grassroots organization and now you've kind of sold out to the city not even for services just to have a platform to be bigger and to be better but at what point do you when you split off i feel like that's kind of where we where we've kind of not dropped the ball, but have been misled. We've been so quick to jump out. Um, and I've said this a couple of times, we've been so reactive and not proactive enough in the mm -hmm. sense of, I definitely think as a, as a collective, as, as black people, we have all the abilities and the capabilities and everything to separate ourselves from the, the whiteness that's pretty much forced on us every single day in our work, our lives, shopping, mm -hmm. driving, everything. Um, but because we've jumped so quickly, jumped the gun a little quickly as far as being reactive instead of proactive, we don't really know what to do. So we've been, we've kind of been trained to be like, we're already, we're all, like Tamika mentioned, we're already skeptical that it's going to actually work out for us because it doesn't always work out. And we always kind of get stuck in a planning period of we don't have enough funding, we don't have right. enough backing. So I think it's doable, but it's also something that coming from a state like Texas, where we tried to do the whole split thing from the U.S., we, we were re reactive, but we weren't proactive. We didn't have a plan. We were just doing it just to do it. I think now is a time where we can definitely do it. It's just like, okay, what's the plan? We got we to gotta go into knowing, okay, if we have land, how are we going to build it out? What's our built environment look like? How are we going to make sure that we have access to the things that we didn't have access to before, like accessible transportation, like sidewalks that are wide enough for me to walk, the next person to use their wheelchair or have crutches, how are we going to create safe spaces like Ebony mentioned to where I can be out and be queer amongst other people that may not be, or I may be with my partner, but I don't, I don't pose a threat to a police officer because I'm sitting enjoying just a holiday like everybody else. So the, I think the opportunities are there. It's a matter of, it sounds bad, but it's almost like separating us from them again, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I, I feel you. I get you, you know, with that. And I really wish I could just continue this because there's just so much to unpack and so much to say. Um, I'm gonna definitely be respectful of everybody's time. So I definitely want you know. Can I say one more thing on on that piece? Oh sure. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. I do think it's important, and I think something that some, that we potentially uniquely understand as queer Black folks is I think a lot of us queer Black folks have had times in our life where we're in groups, um, you know, with predominantly Black people, and sometimes we're aware of not being too queer and then we're in groups with queer people where like our blackness is just something that that is difficult right for them not for us but for them it's right. inconvenient they don't want to talk about it they're just colorblind right. Right. and so i think we're we've all been in spaces at a time that are theoretically supposed to be spaces where we're with our people um but because of your queerness or because of your blackness sometimes that feels uncomfortable and that is not to say mm -hmm. that all black folks are uncomfortable with queer folks or all queer folks are uncomfortable right. with black folks because i think that erases um those of us who are both and i think it also erases many folks in the black community who support us and many queer folks who are doing this work to be anti-racist and to fight anti-blackness with that being said I think as folks who understand that experience uniquely, we have to be keenly aware of when we do our own policing and our own anti-blackness and our yeah. own anti-queerness by trying to determine who is woke enough or whose strategy for change is going to get us to the promised land. Like what I'm concerned about is if someone is shared in my fight for liberation and freedom. And so I am somebody who left the legal profession. I didn't like being a lawyer. I also happen to think that the legal system is set up 
to keep certain folks like in oh, their sure. place and to keep us at a disadvantage. Yeah. But I am not going to say that Justice Sotomayor should not be on the Supreme Court or that Thurgood Marshall should not have been on the Supreme Court because they're buying into a white system and they're just doing what they have to do to like make white people like them. I'm not going to judge them by being, you know, by simply being on the court, just like I'm not going to judge Clarence Thomas just because he make it. I'm going to judge how they show up in the spaces in which they choose to inhabit and how they fight for our shared liberation. And if you are fighting for our shared liberation, I don't want to judge your blackness or your queerness by if you do it the way I would do it. Right. And I think that sometimes that is a problem in our community where we might all be good with each other, like in public, mm -hmm. but behind the scenes, we're calling people out. But again, that also doesn't mean that we can't say to Clarence Thomas, bro, I don't really fuck with you. Right. right. So yeah, so there are there are situations where we know people aren't fighting for our liberation. But I think we have to realize that at the end of the day, to the folks who don't look like us, we all black. We all queer, yes. and whether or not we do it politely or whether or not we do it in the streets, if we kneel, they're mad. If we march, they're mad. If we sit, they're mad. If we walk away, they're mad, right? And so I'm more concerned with those of us who are fighting for this liberation to be ourselves. I know if you touch my sister's hair, she's going to cuss you out. And if you yes. touch my hair, I'm going to make a joke and make you feel awkward, but I'm not necessarily <laughs> going to cuss you out. And both of those responses are valid. Yeah, Both of them are sure, valid. Sure. Both of them are are okay. That's just who we are. And so, you know, I that's not to say I have an opinion on should we do our own thing? Should we not do our own thing? I think the folks who are in those spaces making those decisions, leading our movement, fighting for our freedom, have to say, who am I as a person? And what feels most authentic to me? And how can I serve my biggest purpose and make the most impact to free our people? And that's what I'm going to do. And I don't need other people judging my blackness if I sure, do it a certain way sure. or my queerness, right? For sure. And thanks so much, you know, Tamika, for saying that. And you two, um, I want to close this off. Same thing. So how would y'all recommend, you know, for other, you know, for other Black queer people to just stay engaged in their community and stay engaged in the, in the process? You know, just, you know, whatever. It's the free, free speech moment. <laughs> well, it was the whole time. So. Um, I would say... Nonprofit work and advocacy work is the best, I think, for something like this um, because it is like Tamika mentioned. Like it's always like right now, it's like a judgment of who's woke and who's not, as if being black isn't enough as it is. And it's not to say like I take on more because I'm black and I'm queer, which I kind of do, than just being just black. You know what I'm saying? But I think for us, it's being in those conversations, existing as is, and that that can be harder than what it is, but also being like being a light, being, like you said, like a, being a light, being a shoulder that somebody can lean off for somebody that is trying to come out, but is living that double life with their family, trying to be engaged, but also trying not to put out themselves. There are so many people that want to be involved, but don't want to be outed. I think the first thing we have to do is bring down that silo of, if you don't do what I think you should do, I'm going to out you. Because for some people, outing them can pretty much destroy their whole being, and they're not ready for that level of comfort. Um, so I think as a Black queer planner, it's a matter of creating the space to where I'm going to force feed you to Blackness, whether you want it or not. That's just off the rip. I hear that. But as far as being Black and queer, there are some people that exist around me that they want to be able to have those conversations and be involved in them, but they're not ready to be out. They're not ready to be so, you know, so gay in, in reality, but giving them a place to, to be gay, be, giving them a space to exist in, I think is... I mean, people will come. People will come if you create the space. That's that's what for I think. Sure, for sure. All right, Ebony. What about you? Yeah. Um, so I think I'm really interested and invested in uh, reimagining like the the structures and the systems that we are kind of like living under and living in. Um, and so, you know, to go back on my point about like how like state sanctioned violence is enacted on us and traumatizing us on a you know hourly basis um, like I, I think there are people in our communities who are already doing work to keep us safe yet they don't have resources or the same connections um, and so you know just um, at the allied media conference one comment that uh, someone said it was that really 
little thing for me was, you know, the violence interrupters, the people who are like preventing violence by building community, they're expected to like, you know, shift the moon and the earth with a $10,000 grant and a six month, you know, turnaround time. Um, but other systems that are like in place and having, you know, a billion dollar budget and, you know, not having metrics to really prove that anything has gotten better, um, they're given like, you know, so many more resources and, and time. And so I'm really interested in kind of shifting that to where, you know, we're not necessarily hiring more social workers from the government side because social workers have also been really complicit in enacting, you know, trauma and violence on uh, families, specifically black families. Um, and so how are we like acknowledging the work that's already been done, being done, um, you know, present tense and future tense um, to empower those folks and like give some time and some space. So like, and like, let's actually figure this out as opposed right. to, you know, well, we don't know what defund the police means. We don't know what abolish prisons mean. Okay, well, let's figure it out. We've had a couple of hundred years of, of it not working. So let's take, you know, three or four to figure out how, what can work. Right. So I'm gonna sure. close. Yes, all right, and we're closing it. I'd love to definitely have y'all even back for a part two. There's just so much, you know, to talk about. But I want to take a moment and thank Ebony, Desiree, Tamika, Kristen, all of y'all for taking time out y'all schedules tonight to do this. This is very important. Everybody, there's going to be links in the show notes to everything that, the, that everyone is doing. As always, I'm reachable, lessitlesslighthouse.com. You'll have my, put down my social handles. You can always reach out to me. And once again, everybody, throughout this time, it may seem like it's crazy with the virus and just all the racial, you know, and cultural issues we're going through right now. But this is a movement. This is a revolution. We all must continue to be comrades for each other and be there for ourselves, rest when we need to, and just protect ourselves and protect our loved ones and protect each other continue to be beacons in your life as well as others all right everybody good night and take it easy thank you oh yeah don't log off yet thank you <laughs>